I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Cullen, and today I have an interesting story for you. But first, a couple of quick housekeeping things. Go to the various social media sites, uh, Instagram and Facebook, to check out some maps and images. For this battle in particular, I highly suggest a map. It will come in handy down the end when we start talking about where the ships are and all that. Shout out to our newest producer patron. His name's Chris. Thanks for joining the gang. If you want to become a producer patron, go to patreon.com and search Cauldron. Any amount that is donated at Patreon goes directly into the show, and you get some pretty cool rewards for doing that. So please check that out. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get stuck in. We're going to go back today a little bit in time, some 103 years ago, to the misty-covered, icy waters of the North Sea off of Denmark, to the deciding naval engagement of the First World War, to the Battle of Jutland. So before we really dive into the Battle of Jutland, there's a ton of history about the unification of Germany and the Royal Navy and empire building and all sorts of uh, various little tentacles to this main story that we're about to tell that we are going to kind of just zoom right by and we're going to get right into the the meat and potatoes of the story. But I think an analogy is, is very helpful here. And the analogy that I have in mind when I think of the German Navy at the time of World War I and the, and the, the Royal Navy of, of Great Britain is the idea of, like, the the cool older brother who has, you know, maybe he's 18, 20 years old, he's really strong, he's good-looking, he gets really good grades, he might have, like, a, a muscle car or a really big truck or something like that, and then you've got this little brother who's maybe 10 or 11, and he wants to be just like his brother, and the process of him growing up the, there are all these moments throughout their lives where the older brother can kind of throw his strength, throw his weight, throw his knowledge around, kind of reminding the little brother that he's not, you know, he's not quite there yet. And the little brother is just kind of picking information. He's kind of picking up on all these little things. And it'll eventually be, there. there will eventually come a time, a day where, the little brother surprises the big brother by how much he's learned, how strong he's gotten, how big he's gotten. And so I, I, I remember when I was younger with my brother, we, we would play catch. And for a long time, uh, you know, I could zip the ball in and really it would kind of, you know, it would remind him that I, I'm, it, it was kind of a jerk move, but 
I was able to throw the ball harder and faster than he was. And eventually he would quit and, you know, we wouldn't play catch for a while. And then we play catch again, and it invariably ended with me throwing the ball too hard or too what too fast. And then as he got older, I remember a couple of times where all of a sudden we're playing catch, and, and now my hand is starting to hurt in my glove, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's cotton up to me. He's getting, you know, he's getting bigger. He's getting stronger. I think of that analogy when I, when I think of the German Navy and the Royal Navy meeting at Jutland. And I think if you, if you keep that in the back of your head as a framework for the battle that's about to be talked about, it will kind of help you, uh, you know, give, give weight to or, or at least ground what, what we're about to talk about. The original German Navy was no more than basically a living coastal defense. It was, it was even commanded by generals at first because there was really no coastline or there was, Germany didn't have a huge amount of access to the open ocean, so the Navy wasn't really considered top priority. But as the German Empire starts to kind of come into its own after a few major battles with other powers in Europe, and it's kind of asserted its dominance, the German Empire really wants to become an empire and start to get colonies in Asia and Africa and all over the world. So in 1897, the German Navy takes its first step towards a legitimate, uh, a legitimate Navy by naming a man named Rear Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz as State Secretary of the Navy. A visionary and a true problem solver, Tirpitz, he sees the German issue very clearly right from the beginning. The, the German Empire needed a strong navy to get what it wanted. And what it wanted was to build an empire that would be able to supply it with all the material and the financial aid that it could possibly get. It was trying to mimic or, or mime the British Empire. But the problem was that in order to get that empire or achieve that goal, the German Navy needed to build a large number of warships. And it needed to do that subtly and in a way that the British would not, uh, would not step in and take action. So Tirpitz devised this, this idea, and he called it his, quote, risk theory. And the idea was simple. He wanted to quietly build an elite fleet of quality capital ships, and he wanted to do it quickly, like within 20 or 30 years. So then basically the idea was he would build the fleet, and then by the time that the British started to make a fuss or become aware, it was a fait accompli. It was already done. He, he planned to be strong enough to, at that point, play a game of chicken with the Royal Navy. And now he knew how dear the ships or the capital ships of the Royal Navy were to the the British government. So his theory was that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't engage in any kind of risky behavior, and that would p- potentially lead to them losing any any of these capital ships. Tirpitz even had a an actual number in mind, and he figured that sixty capital ships or sixty ships in some form that would be strong enough to to give pause to the British Navy would be enough to 
get Germany out there and start building that, that transoceanic empire. And, and really presciently, Tirpitz believed a better trained crew with state-of-the-art equipment and a clear strategy would be enough to win against the tradition and ability of the Royal Navy. Because the British Empire was so far-flung and massive, at this point it's, it's got like a third of the world's population, a quarter of its landmass, uh, you know, and it's, it's all over the globe. You could, basically you could walk from Australia through parts of Asia, through India, through the Middle East, and come down and end up in South Africa without ever really leaving any British territory. And so Tirpitz believes that if he can, uh, you know, focus his strategy and really get, get his strategy really simple and basic with his smaller but more technologically advanced Navy, he would be able to, to really punch above his weight class. And the, the idea had some merit because he only had to break out of any kind of blockade or any kind of defensive position that the Royal Navy might take whereas the Royal Navy, he thought, would be forced to kind of protect everything at once and be kind of a blanket force all around the globe. Adding to this, uh, this whole Tirpitz risk theory shaker were two key ingredients that made a deadly cocktail. The first ingredient of this cocktail was the world-shifting book The Influence of Sea Power Upon History by Alfred Thayer Mahan, which was released in 1890. Tirpitz reads this in like 1893 or 1894. He has it, actually, he has it translated to German just so he can read it. And then he reads it and finds it fascinating, finds it like almost everybody else who read this book at this time to be kind of formulative, like it blew their minds and also kind of set the whole world on this path towards World War I. And so uh, Mahan reads this and then he gets it to the Kaiser, and Kaiser Wilhelm is the, you know, he's the, essentially he's the emperor of Germany. So this book, The, the Influence of Sea Power, was like a how-to for dummies on world power. It outlined how to build a powerful state through naval conquest. Mahan uses case studies. So he, he's saying, like, uh, he's taking a look at especially tr battles like Trafalgar and talking about how these decisive engagements of blue water fleets can really change the outlook of, of the geopolitical and, and just the, the, the overall strategic map in one, you know, one afternoon. So everyone in power in the world at this point essentially reads this book. And unfortunately for history, the German Kaiser Wilhelm, as I said, was included in that group. And he had always been a, a real 
Um, he had been a Navy boy since his childhood. He grew up in the shadow of the Royal Navy. He's an Anglophile. He's the grandson of Queen Victoria. And he loved everything about the Royal Navy, the traditions and the, the pomp and circumstance, but also the technical aspects of the Navy were really important to him. He spent a lot of time doodling ship designs on napkins and, and talking to admirals about the, the next upcoming uh, the newest and most interesting technology and its applications. He was a huge naval history fan. He particularly uh, loved the Battle of Trafalgar. That was his favorite battle. He had even had his own rank in the German Navy created, and that is the Great Admiral. So you get a sense of how he thought of himself, how he thought where his navy and, and his stature should be on the world scale. And when he was touring around the world, he would even dress in the uniform of whatever navy he was visiting. So when he was when he was visiting in, in Greece or France or Russia or even in Great Britain, he would wear a captain or a commodore or an admiral's uniform of that particular country. So after reading Mahan and already being a huge, uh, a huge Navy fan, the Kaiser strongly, strongly believes that Germany needs to build a blue water fleet and seek a decisive victory against the strongest potential enemy at sea, which at this point in time, the only real enemy at sea for any country or the only enemy that anybody has in mind when they're trying to, to think navally is pretty much Great Britain. So with a, a solid plan on how to go about getting an empire and the backing of his Kaiser, Tirpitz sets things in motion. And at this point, the modern world's first real arms race was on. So, as we said, Tirpitz had a risk theory, but he also had a plan. And he called it, quote, a patient laying of brick upon brick. And that's how he explained his plan for getting money and making ships. So a very methodical kind of uh, paint-by-numbers situation here. And in 1898, he passes the Navy Bill, gets a solid result from it, and then he passes another one, or gets another one passed in 1900. And this essentially doubles the, f the size of the German fleet. And in 1906, he even had a supplementary bill passed. So things were really rolling for Tirpitz and his overall design, or the outlook he had for the German Navy. But the problem with his plan is that the British were never fooled. They pretty much, from the jump, were in a, a tizzy over the German buildup. The very, very beginning of the Germans starting to build up their navy got the Royal Navy all, all hot and bothered, and they were crying out for more funding. The two-power, or quote, two-power policy, by which Britain had maintained its supremacy at sea for, for almost decades at this point, really what it means is that the British Navy had to maintain a larger single navy than the next two great powers combined. So if Russia and, and France have 50 ships, Great Britain has to have 
75, just to make sure that it's more powerful than the next two fleets on the ocean. The British Empire is starting to get a little antsy and is starting to fear the growing strength of the German Navy across the North Sea there, so they are trying to scramble and get their their act together. That's when the British get their own version of Tirpitz, and this man's name is Admiral John Fisher. He is a dynamo, a really revolutionary figure within the Royal Navy. He's extremely funny. He's cantankerous. He's witty. He's exactly what you might think of a, you know, a a firebrand British admiral. So if you ever get the opportunity, I suggest you read some of his uh, some of his quotes or works or, or biographies about him. Very interesting character. But Fisher has a great idea. The, the expansive British Navy all over the world isn't really up to snuff at this point in time. There's a lot of kind of loose change in terms of, of the ships that are out there. So Fisher goes out and he has every sloop, every gunboat, and every small wooden ship that he can find scrapped. He takes them off the Navy lists because they don't really matter anymore. Fisher explains this saying, quote, an enemy cruiser would lap them up like an armadillo let loose on an anthill, end quote. So they, you know, no longer will the British Navy be taking these tiny little boats and going up the, you know, up the Amazon to find a little trading post and put down a tribal uprising. They don't need to. They can use, you know, they can use modern ships made of steel and, and iron and all this, all the, the metal uh, advances of the time and, and everything that the industrial revolution has brought to the naval arms, they now can use that. So in all, Fisher has shaved off 154 ships from the Navy list in 1905. He also cut and condensed the number of foreign fleets and stations. So all over the globe, the Royal Navy has these stations, so it's kind of like a little home base but it's so far away from Britain that they have to make them in, like, you know, wherever they, they first landed, that's where it starts to grow. And now what Fisher does is he condenses a lot of these far-flung ones, and he brings them to, like, key choke points. So you've got Gibraltar is always one. There's one in Malta, I think. There's another one in uh, the Suez in Egypt. And then you have what is modern-day Singapore, but previously that was like Australia and the Pacific Station and all these far-flung places. Now they're all based in Singapore. So instead of having dozens of small fleets, he has like four or five medium-sized fleets. And then those, those condensing actions can bring a lot of bigger ships back home to the the home islands for their protection. So all of this shifting and cutting has given Fisher in his home waters or home territory a 25 to 15 ratio of battleship advantage over the German Empire. Then, to make Britain even more safe, Fisher put the entire world in danger. Meet the HMS Dreadnought, finished in record time when it was started in October 1905 and launched in February 1906. 
The dreadnought changed the world overnight. At 1.7 million pounds in its day, today, which roughly comes out to about 200 million pounds, this behemoth battleship made the rest of the world's navies obsolete immediately. The sizable rotary turbine allowed for a lower profile and thicker armor. It was immensely powerful, meaning that the armor could be piled on and the engine would just keep chugging away. It would also achieve a higher speed than most other battleships at the time, and the armor was then added to 10 12-inch guns on five turrets. That makes it just this... I mean, it makes it a rolling artillery platform, essentially, or a swimming artillery platform. So the world's navies are trembling. They're obsolete overnight, but so is the Royal Navy. It had effectively outdated itself with the launch of the HMS Dreadnought. Now, its own ships would be vulnerable to the inevitable foreign copies of the Dreadnought, so the, the Royal Navy made up a plan. The HMS Dreadnought, which would eventually give its name to the entire category of these battleships of the time period, was to be quickly followed by even bigger and faster versions of itself. Then the Royal Navy would churn out the perceived next big thing, and that was the battle cruiser. The battle cruiser had all of the punching power of a dreadnought, but it had much less armor, so it was much faster. The idea was by sacrificing some of that thick dreadnought armor, these ships had the same, uh, the ability to just kind of escape whatever danger that they were going to be in. And they would be used to try and sweep away any of the enemy's smaller ships, like little torpedo boats and light cruisers and other cruisers around. And then at that point, they would be setting the table for the big boys to just duke it out. That was the theory, at least. We'll see how that played out. The... Dreadnought's debut put Turpitz right back on his heels. Gone were the careful brick-by-brick brick plans. He needed to come up with a way to match the better technology of the Royal Navy, the firepower, the armor, the speed. He had to come up with a way to, to match that and then try and get as many of those ships made as quickly as possible. Knowing that he'd never get the numbers to make parity with the Royal Navy, he kind of ditched that for the idea of just trying to have the best possible equipment that he could, you know, scrounge up. So to that end, Turpitz demands three new dreadnoughts and a brand new battle cruiser with the threat of his resignation behind that, uh, that demand. So it was basically, give me my ships or I'm going home. And the German, the, the German government automatically, you know, they, they caved and they, they put in for those ships to be made. The German building policy of stockpiling materials and using and they used much better prefabrication techniques than most other countries at the time, allowed for a very quick turnaround on building times. To uh, accommodate the width and draft of the dreadnoughts that were being built, the, the Kyle or Kiel Canal was deepened and widened. The Germans proved so efficient 
that some theorists predicted by 1912 the British lead in battleships in the North Sea would be down to 20 to 17. So that's 20 British capital ships against 17 German. And there were even some theorists at the time who had the Germans with a slight edge of 21 to 20 in that same time frame. All this activity in Germany created a panic in London. The great naval scare of 1909 drove the public and press into an utter frenzy. Everyone in Britain was keeping track of the race with Germany. The Navalist Party wanted to go bigger, they wanted to go faster, they wanted to go stronger with every ship that they made, and to hell with the cost. Playing on public fear, they drove the Admiralty to build more ships and quicker. The government in 1909 planned four new dreadnoughts. Not good enough, said the Navalists. They demanded six. In the end, the two sides agreed to build four in 1909 and a further four in 1910, if needed. Churchill, then the Home Secretary, cut to the absurdity of the, this agreement by quipping, quote, The Admiralty had demanded six ships, the economists offered four, and we finally compromised on eight. It was, however, interestingly enough, according to the author Arthur Martyr, the four ships that they had decided to build in 1910 were apparently to be the, quote, bare margin of security when war broke out in 1914. Even before the Archduke was cut down in Sarajevo, the Royal Navy was planning for war. Churchill had sent the Grand Fleet, the Grand Fleet's this colossal home water force that's always based in England just to protect the island itself. And Churchill sends it to its Scottish berths at Rosyth and at Scapa Flow. And Scapa Flow is this perfect port. It's at the very top of the island, at, you know, in between the mainland of Scotland and, and one of the larger islands up there. And it's a perfect spot for the Navy to just kind of sit there in a protective nest and be able to swoop down on the left or the right side of the island, depending on wherever the threat might, you know, might be coming from. So the Royal Navy had the right ships in the right place to hold the German Navy in place. The concern now was, did it have the will and the men to defeat the German Navy? The century since Nelson commanded the, quote, Hearts of Oak had improved the equipment of the Navy and its technical abilities, but not really its fighting experience. It didn't get the day-to-day -day life of fighting at sea that it did for, for such a long time from the time of Drake to the time of Nelson. The great European peace that followed Napoleon's exile to uh, St. Helena had really kind of allowed the fighting, the fighting skill of the Royal Navy to kind of die down a little bit. They fought a lot of, uh, you know, basically there, there, there were no real opportunities for large-scale fighting at sea. What, what little experience was to be gained was mostly done on rivers or in colonial, you know, hot spots all over the world. 
In fact, Admiral Beatty, a critical British commander in this battle, he cut his teeth in the Sudan against the Mahdi uprising in, I think it's like 18, late 1880s, maybe 1888. Uh, and uh, so Churchill, at one point, he's he's afraid. He When war breaks out in 1914, he's afraid for the Royal Navy because he knows that that's the last line and the most important part of the defense of the home island. And he says, quote, we had more captains of ships than captains of war, end quote. Sailing, navigation, exploration, seamanship, these are the real ballywhack of the Royal Navy. Not necessarily good, hard, gritty fighting. To kind of further hinder the captains of the time, the most common signal that was given by admirals at this point was, quote, follow senior officers' motions, end quote. Now, this is a very pedantic, unimaginative order, and it killed any kind of ingenuity or, or individuality that a captain might have to try and show his ability or, or his ingenuity or whatever it might be. But it was not, uh, you know, it, 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 there's good reason why they obeyed it. Because first off, if you disobey this, you're very likely killing your career. But the other reason is, as these ships become more substantial and so much more expensive and so much more time is put into them and so much more of the, the, the collected treasure of your country is invested, the national identity of your country is being wrapped up in this one particular thing to risk sending to the bottom 200 million pounds of your country's money and one of its maybe 25 most special weapons, that's got to be a weighty, scary thought if you're a captain. Like, I totally understand why you might, you know, you might be okay when your adm admiral says, don't risk anything here, just follow me, do what I do or do what I say. It takes the decision-making away from you. So if something gets screwed up, hey, hey, I just followed orders. He told me to follow him. That's it. So I totally understand that. And then there's the other part where it's much easier to be bold and wasteful on land where you have 500,000 men in an army and each one of those only costs a few thousand pounds a year. So if you lose, a, you know, if you lose a whole bunch of them, you're still not even coming close to the 200 million in treasure that you have in one of these ships. And if you lose... You know, if you lose 100,000, you've got 400,000 more. And we're about to see this play out for the next four years as, as the mindset of a lot of these generals in the First World War. Uh, so you're, you, you have to kind of understand where these ships, the, the place that they took in terms of the, the mental space that they rented in the minds of the, the government and the people in the day. So, but... To truly understand these navies, we've got to take a quick look at the men of the navy. The Germans had two men in charge of the, the vaunted German high seas fleet. The, uh, the leader of the battle cruisers was a man named Franz Hipper, and he was a highly regarded sailor and a man of action. Taking advantage of his aggressive nature, he was again put in charge of these quick you know, very powerful, lightly armored, but very fast and strong battle cruisers. In December of 1914, his ships were very successfully able to bombard British coastal towns, 
causing severe civilian casualties at Scarborough. This is the nightmare of everyone in the Admiralty. The idea that the island isn't safe, that anybody could just kind of like drive by with a boat, fire a couple of shots into some poor coastal town, and then slip away in the night. That's a terrifying, that's a real nightmare for everybody in the Royal Navy, everybody in England, or, you know, in the United Kingdom. So at Scarborough, uh, Hipper causes some damage to the home island. And then at the Battle of Dogger Bank, Hipper maneuvers his ships very well against a much stronger enemy force. And his only, uh, you know, his, his only casualty was one older vessel that, uh, that he lost, but he was able to slip away from this stronger enemy. And uh, at Jutland, he is going to prove a very fearless and dedicated, if not entirely inspired or, or necessarily brilliant commander. The man above him, his CEO, Admiral Reinhard Scheer, is a little bit more of an enigma. He's confident, he's unassuming, he deeply resented the inaction of his fleet. He hated the idea that he, his, his ships are penned up and not helping in the war effort. And there's got to be some kind of a, a aspect of this that is like an unmanning. Like, he's a warrior, you know, he's got the warrior spirit, spirit in him, and he sees the German army just throwing itself up against the, the collected allied forces and just bloodying itself day in and day out, and yet he and his, his ships and his men are just kind of sitting there waiting for their moment to come. So we kind of see, uh, you can kind of understand why he's so desperate to get to sea and grab the enemy and just bring them to grips at some point. So Scheer is, is put in charge of the high seas fleet in 1916. The pressure to bring the British Grand Fleet to battle was, was immense. And it's an interesting thing. You have, uh, again, Scheer is this enigma, mainly to, to me, but maybe some people totally understand him. I'm, again, not a historian, not a biograph- biographer or expert or anything like that. I'm just an interested party, and uh, so I, I'm I'm confused a little bit by him, but it's mainly from the sources, because John Keegan, in the main source I used, The Price of Admiralty, he gives Shear the, quote, Nelsonian stamp, end quote, basically saying he's one of the great, you know, brilliant commanders of ships, but then a bunch of other sources I've read said, you know, gave him mediocre to bad grades at best. So I don't know exactly where Shear kind of lands, but he does seem to have understood the technology of the day. And he undoubtedly cared for his men and his ships. And he does a pretty good job at the end of this battle, kind of uh, saving the rest of his fleet. So We'll get to that at the end. But first, let's take a look at the British admirals who the Germans would be facing. Facing the German admirals, we have two seemingly very different men. David Beatty was the epitome of dashing daring do. 
in some of the portraits, and I po- I found a really interesting, good uh, color po- portrait of Beatty that I posted to Instagram, and he has this uh, this jawline of a matinee idol, and he's got his cap tipped at this this ridiculous kind of improbably jaunty angle. He looks like what you would imagine a nineteen. 19- 47 or 45 movie with a British admiral or, you know, the hero of the day is this British admiral. This is what he looks like. Again, Beatty fought at the Sudan against the Mahdi in, uh, in Kitchener's Omdurman campaign. And he had been, uh, he had seen some action there in 1910 at the age of 39. He becomes the youngest admiral since Nelson himself which probably gave him the biggest, you know, biggest head of all time. But uh, he, he was definitely a man of action, so it was probably well-deserved. Leaning into his personality and his kind of go-get-him attitude, the Admiralty assigned him the Battlecruiser Squad. Again, like Hipper, he's one of these aggressive commanders, so they give him the fast, powerful, lightly armed ships to try and punch holes in the enemy as, as quickly as possible. The, uh, at first, it worked at the Battle of Hilly Golan Bight. His ships bagged three cruisers and a destroyer. But up against Hipper at Dogger Bank, Beatty was less successful. He, he was only able to take out one old cruiser. Though he did show great courage and talent at the battle, he was very, very strangely bad at delivering signals, or at least inadequate signals, that would uh, eventually lead to Hipper being able to slip away. This is kind of an interesting little bit of foreshadowing, so keep in mind, Beatty, not a great, uh, not a great signaler, or, you know, detailed signaler, or it might not be his fault, maybe the ships are missing it, but somehow he's dogged by this whole signals being missed thing. So keep that in mind as we move forward. The man meant to direct and rein in Beatty as needed was a man named John Jellicoe. Jellicoe was highly intelligent and insightful, and he came from a very humble background, which is kind of rare in the Admiralty. Uh, You don't see that very often, but he rose through the Navy lists on hard work and technical expertise, and Jellicoe proved himself a very, very capable uh, captain and admiral. Most of his career, unlike Beatty, Jellicoe was at the Admiralty, and Jellicoe was not much of a delegator, which would have, would come back to bite him in the butt later on. He only reluctantly took the Grand Fleet command. And that's interesting because you would think, as an admiral, you jump at the best command you can get. The Grand Fleet protecting the home islands, that's a pretty big deal. But Jellicoe was kind of a, um, uh, I don't want to say a nervous man, but he, he, he feared taking risks. And he thought that this might very well be a huge risk. Again, as only Churchill was able to succinctly put it, quote, he believed he was the only man on either side that could lose the war in an afternoon, end quote. So Churchill really encapsulates the man. He's afraid that something he does will directly lead to the Grand Fleet being lost and therefore the war for, for Great Britain will be lost. The thing is, though, with Jellicoe, he's not exactly wrong here either. With that hanging over his head, 
it's no surprise with that fear hanging over his head. It's no surprise that Jellicoe's number one fear going in was losing even one of his ships. And Jellicoe's concern here stemmed from a place of reality. If the dominance in your home waters was lost, Britain might find itself under attack, it might find itself unable to feed itself, and Britain might find itself forever having lost world naval supremacy. Given the enemy that he was facing and their competency, this seemed, you know, possible, if not necessarily likely, certainly possible. And the high seas fleet had better technology. Some of the ship designs were better than what the Royal Navy had going. The, the, the fleet of Germany had these thicker armor belts at the waterline. And that's where most of your shell, shells are going to be kind of targeted at and meant to be directed at. So if your, your armor is thicker at the waterline, you're less likely to get, uh, you know, a, a, a shell punched through where it might sink you. Also, if the Royal Navy shots did penetrate the water, uh, the waterline, the actual structure of the ship made it more of uh, the German ships made them more watertight than the other ships on the sea at the time. Because, you know, so, okay, famously the Titanic sank because, and everybody knows the story of the Titanic, it gets hit by the iceberg, uh, Jack draws Rose, you know the deal. So the Titanic gets hit by the iceberg, or vice versa, it hits the iceberg, and then a big hole gets punched in the side, and then the ocean pours into the big ship, and it has these bulkheads, and they're designed to take on water, but they're all connected, and so as one fills up, the water overflows into the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, and then all of a sudden your buoyancy is totally gone, and the Titanic breaks in two and sinks to the bottom. Not so with the German ships. They used what they called a, quote, honeycomb design, and that locked water out by section. Now, the British did use a similar design, but the Germans had a lot more of these honeycomb cells, meaning that for the British, buoyancy would become a much bigger issue much sooner if the ship was penetrated by a shot. The Germans had more time to kind of deal with the problem as it was happening and try and figure out a way to save the ship than the, the British would if the German ships were, in fact, punctured. The German guns, however, were a little bit smaller than the British guns, but they had better fire control, so they had better ability to target and range and and pull in the, uh, you know, find the enemy and then fire the shot and repeatedly fire in the same consistent way. And their optics for range finding were much, much better. And that's something that would allow them to have more consistent hits. And we'll see that throughout the battle, that the Germans are able to make a lot of shots count. Now, the German sailors were very well trained, uh, they were very enthusiastic, but they were also, they were essentially conscripts, so it was part of their compulsory service. So they served fairly short stints. The German officers were very professional, they had all the academic credentials, and they showed incredible readiness to go down with the ships, so the great devotion that you expect in your navy. 
but they tended to come from sturdy landlubber stock because, again, Germany is this landlocked Central European nation. It doesn't have very many, you know, day trippers or yachters or whatever. So they kind of lacked any tradition or any innate seamanship. And in fact, the whole German naval service was missing even a trace of the tradition of the sea So that, that, that was so, so abundant in the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy sailors and Marines were the opposite of the German. They were long servicemen. They were, in, in many cases, they were career men. The, the seamanship was uncanny. And, and in many cases, this is interesting to me at least, the men uh, sailing at Jutland hailed from the very villages and coastal ports that had provided crews to Drake, to Captain Cook, to Captain Bly, to Captain Howe, uh, or Admiral Howe and Admiral Nelson. These, these little places were still pouring out excellent sailors hundreds of years after the first men went to sea. And the sailors came from the the famous West Countries, or the uh, the Thames and the Medway, the Scottish Firths and estuaries from Irish and Welsh coast, coastal villages. Um, five of the men sailing at Jutland had direct descendants that even served under Horatio Nelson in his famous Band of Brothers. The names of the men and their homes hadn't changed very much. And neither did their living situation on board. As ever, living space on a ship is at a premium. But with the dreadnought engine and gun turrets taking up two-thirds of the ship's area, in 1916, that was even more true. On Nelson's victory, or his, his ship, the victory, 800 men were living in shifts in about 150 to 200 feet of lower deck space. They basically just slung their hammocks wherever they could. And the Dreadnought uh, had three times the space in theory, but with the machinery everywhere, men still found themselves slinging hammocks wherever they could. If most of life on board seemed the same, duties on ships had drastically changed. Specialization had given the ship dozens of new jobs to get done. In Nelson's day, there had been four ratings, and those were able, less than able, craftsman, and marine. Now there were infinitely more jobs. Quote, However, among seamen, there were shell carriers, shell and charge handlers, turret crews, gun layers, range takers, rate takers, telephonists, signalers, in the propulsion crew, an entirely new category, mechanics, artificers, and electricians, as well as stokers, while among officers there were five separate hierarchies, the gunnery officers, the navigators, the signal officers, the engine commanders, and the paymaster supply officers, as well as the captain's own command, end quote. And that's from John Keegan talking about just how many various jobs there were for the modern Navy to deal with when, you know, a couple hundred or a couple decades ago, there was only a few. What's interesting is that all of these sailors and all of their various Star Wars-like ships with all their modern weapons and their, their new jobs were going to play a, as vital a role in the battle to come as any able seaman at Trafalgar.
all of the fancy optics, high-tech ships, and, and well-trained crews really meant nothing if the two fleets never met and did battle. The strategy for the Royal Navy was pretty straightforward from the very beginning of the war straight through, and that was one simple thing, blockade. Even before the war had kicked off, like I said earlier, Churchill had sent the Grand Fleet to its positions in Scotland, and this was to prove extremely helpful in the whole process of what they called a distance blockade. And the distance blockade just means that it's a kind of loose net. It allows your enemy to come to you, but they can never really escape you. So you don't have to stay right in close. Otherwise, like in basketball or whatever, the closer you get, the more likely your enemy is going to try and do something funky and slip right by you. And then you're chasing them instead of just being in front of them, playing a soft defense and letting them come to you. On top of that distance blockade, the British had also gone really close into the shore and laid a series of complex minefields all through the, the North Sea and the Channel and, and anywhere that the Germans might try and put to sea, they put in a bunch of these minefields, and, which makes it very difficult for the Germans to, to maneuver around the waters there. Add to that the fact that even if they did try and get out and try and get through the minefields, to attempt to run through the channel with the potential for the French Navy, the British Navy, the guns on either side, planes, even at this early stage, the possibility of the Germans getting through without su suffering severe damage was really, really unlikely. So the Germans were utterly cut off at this point from the world trade, from any sources of outside food supply. Uh, the Germans are getting a lot of their food supply from Bulgaria and the uh, southeastern European countries So because they couldn't access the sea. They couldn't get any food from anywhere else. The blockade, in fact, led directly, it was so good, it led directly to the Great Turnip Winter. This is a dire, dire situation on the German home front. There's starvation and there's death, and it's, it's being caused, some sources even say, that by the war's end, some 750,000 German civilians would be starved to death or die from nutritionally related diseases. So this is a massive, massive problem for the German government to address and try and figure out. And one of the ways that they're going to do that is to go to Scheer and say, you've got to do something about it. You've got to break this blockade. We put all this money and time and effort into these ships. Now let's use the damn things and get the, uh, get the food flowing back into Germany. There had, in fact, like I said earlier, been some smaller attempts, like at the uh, the blockade or, or at the bombarding of Britain. Of uh, you've got Dogger Bank and Heligoland Bight. These are all, you know, very small and, and minor attempts at luring the Grand Fleet out of its position and pulling it down into a place where the German High Seas Fleet might be able to take some take some hits at it. The Germans overall, though, they had a choice here, and they had to make it quick. They could beat the British in a decisive sea battle. Again, that Mahan thing that we talked about earlier, where you've got two blue water fleets, and you're taking them to, uh, to a point where they're going to just mash it out on the open ocean, and the winner takes all. Or the Germans could resort to 
the the potentially dangerous option of unrestricted submarine warfare. Now, this this could possibly force the British to their very knees. It could bring them to the table to discuss peace. But if the option of unrestricted submarine warfare didn't go the way that the Germans wanted, it is likely that it would have brought the U.S. into the war. In fact, it plays a role in the whole process of the United States getting into the fight. The, uh, if you'll remember, the year before, the Lusitania had been sunk in an uh, incident where a torpedo from, I, I, wanna, I believe it was a, a U-boat, might have been a torpedo boat, I don't remember. But anyhow, the Lusitania sinks. It's got a couple of Americans on it. Americans everywhere are really upset by this. Woodrow Wilson decides to say that any ship with an American on it is essentially a sovereign American, you know, uh, <laughs> works basically like a, a giant shield for all the world's navies except for Germany, which is kind of a, a shady little thing. But anyhow, the Germans are leery of doing the unrestricted uh, uh, submarine warfare thing because they don't want to add to the Allied cause by pulling the United States in. Scheer, with the Kaiser's backing, went with what Mahan's Bible on sea power had recommended. Overall, Scheer aimed to pull the British battle cruiser fleet out into unfavorable circumstances using his own slightly smaller battle cruiser fleet as bait. Then, when the two uh, two smaller fleets were engaged, the rest of the German high seas fleet would swoop in and obliterate the battle, uh, the British battle cruisers in the open. Ideally, this would all happen well before the rest of Jellicoe's grand fleet had appeared. This whole operation relied heavily on timing on the German part. So to aid this, the Germans had mines and submarines sitting outside of the Scottish ports waiting to pick off ships as they sailed out of their moorings. So this would put Jellicoe on the wrong footing right from the jump. And by the time Jellicoe's grand fleet of real dreadnought battleships showed up to help Beatty and his battle cruisers, the Germans hoped that the damage would be done and they would already be on their way home. Or if the mines and the submarines played the role that the, they hoped for, the Germans would be able to pick off stragglers and knock out little wounded ships or battleships that came with Jellicoe's crew. So the Germans were hoping to just kind of winnow the numbers down enough so that the two grand fleets could trade trade punches with each other, and then the blockade, in in all hopes, would be broken and the Germans would be able to start getting food back into the bellies of the people of their country. And now that's the ideal situation for the Germans. What they had no way of knowing, though, was that the British had an almost identical plan and that the Royal Navy intended to use Beatty's battle cruisers as bait on their own. And then the Grand Fleet intended to swoop down on the German High Seas Fleet when they were engaged with Beatty's ships, overpowering the entire German force. And what the Germans also didn't know is that the British knew their entire plan down to the very time they were going to leave their ports.
All right, so earlier we talked about needing a map for this battle. This would be the time that you should, uh, you should be consulting that map. So if you need one, go to the Instagram or the Facebook and type in Cauldron Podcast and just find it in the backlog of the various posts. The battle that follows is really several smaller kind of jagged little engagements with a couple of enormous gunfights. And if you break it down, it's simply for main acts, and that's what we'll kind of address as we go. So you've got Act 1, which is Beatty's Run to the South, and then you've got Act 2, which is Beatty's Run to the North. Act 3 is the fleet action. The fourth and final act is a prolonged night fight as the Germans try to escape. So if you just keep in mind, that's what it is. It's going to sound confusing. There's a lot of ship names, and, and I'm not going to go super into detail and name off every single, you know, every single light cruiser and destroyer and every single ship that was there. I'm not going to go into, you know, the, the wonderful thing about naval engagements at this time and, and through the last century or so is that Everything's, or no, actually, no, the last few centuries, especially with the Royal Navy, they catalog every every minute of every fight. They're talking about, like, you know, 401, we turned to due east. 403, we went south by southwest. And 502, we shot this. And I'm not going to go through that. There are plenty of websites. The Imperial War Museum has a great, um, great, like, minute-by-minute minute recounting of the battle. You can definitely check it out, but uh, I think to get a good sense of the battle, we're just going to do kind of an overview bird's eye situation, hit the key moments, and and that should give us a good enough picture of what we're talking about, about the Battle of Jutland. All right, so let's get right to it. On May 31st at 1 a.m., the German first scouting group of five fast battle cruisers leaves port chugging along at 26 knots heading, heading north. They are to try and find and fix the enemy position if possible. So this is Hipper, and his group is trying to find out where the, the British fleet is or pull them out of port. And then once they're out of port, Hipper is going to find them and kind of nail down exactly their position and then let Shear and the high seas fleet know. And so giving him some space, Shear leaves port at 2.30. So like an hour and a half later, Shear follows up, and he's got the rest of that big German high seas fleet. Shear has 22 battleships, 16 true dreadnought ships, 11 light cruisers, and 61 destroyers. Shear knew his weaknesses, and he knew that this is the main weakness of his ships was in the weight of their broadsides. So his ships were throwing 200,000 pounds of metal into the air, whereas the British were able to throw double that, 400,000 pounds, because of the larger size of the British guns. So Shear hoped strategy and better equipment would eventually tell and be able to, to kind of make up for this deficiency. With Hipper way out in front, Shear headed due north, planning on picking off isolated or damaged enemy ships that had run into his submarines and mines, and then he would finish off the British battlecruisers of Beatty and head home, safe and sound, having won a massive victory for Germany. And it was a good plan, and it was a very good plan. 
And the British entirely agreed because they knew everything about it. If uh, any of you have listened to Dan Carlin's series on the First World War, and I, I highly suggest you do, if this is interesting to you in any way, by all means go and check that out. He is the best at this. He's the he's the man, and we all love him. So definitely keep uh, keep listening and, and check out that show if you haven't heard it. Go and listen to uh, his World War One series. But at one point, he asks a really great question. He says, uh, aren't the British the best code breakers of the 20th century? And I think that's a direct quote, actually. But anyhow, that's the gist of the question. And there, there's no way you can disagree with him. They really are. From from World War One to World War Two, through the Cold War, even before that, in the in the 19th century, they were doing this all the time, where they were able to kind of backhand deals, and they knew what other countries were going to do before even some of the people that ran those countries knew what they were going to do. And this is no different here in World War One. They had this stuff on lockdown, and when it came to the German naval codes, the uh, the the Admiralty they proved their ability. The German cipher had been broken long before the battle ever took place, and the Admiralty was very well aware what the overall German plan was. So good was their intel that two hours before Hipper even left port, Jellicoe's Grand Fleet had already steamed out of Scapa Flow, and Beatty and his battle cruisers had also been given orders to leave Rosith at the same time. So the British were anticipating everything about this to the point where they were two hours ahead of the earlier part of the German uh, of the German plan. And all of the British ships were chugging southeast towards the Danish coastline. It's an amazing combination of, of excellent intel, excellent luck, and unfortunately for the German submarines, they were running low on fuel, so the ships that lift, uh, left the Scottish uh, ports were able to sail through Shear's little trap completely unscathed. Beatty's fast force of battlecruisers was made up of six of these ships, and you had the HMS Lion, the HMS uh, Tiger, HMS Princess Royal, HMS Queen Mary, HMS Indefatigable, and the HMS New Zealand. And if you get a chance, there's a really cool story about the New Zealand. There's a captain, he's got this skirt from a Maori warrior, and they would, uh, the whole idea was that if the captain wore this skirt during the battle, they'd go unscathed, and wouldn't you know it, the New Zealand actually gets through the battle without any casualties and without any damage to the ship. I'm, I'm pretty positive that's how it goes. But So that's an interesting story. If you, if you get the chance, go deeper on it. In support of Beatty's uh, fa little fast battle cruisers was a force of the four best ships, bar none, on either side of this battle. And these are the, the brand spanking new Queen Elizabeth-class battleships. And they consisted of the HMS Barham, the HMS Valiant, Warspite, and the Malaya. And each one of these was a beast. They combined all the tech and armor of a modern battleship with an incredible 25-knot speed and a whopping 15-inch set of guns. Some of these behemoths would even fight through the Second World War and end up, I think, like the final one is, I want to say the war spite, and it's, it's taking place in, in operations in the 1950s, almost 40 years later. 
and Beatty has these these beautiful Queen Elizabeths, and he's got his battle cruisers, and he's also got a, a myriad of smaller support ships to go along, so torpedo boats and whatnot. Behind Beatty was Jellicoe's Grand Fleet, in itself maybe the most potent force on the seas to this point in history. He had 24 battleships, and these are of the true dreadnought make. Three of the battle cruisers, and sailing in three squadrons of eight, each one of these grouping of four battleships had its own flag officer. And uh, of course, riding along was uh, with these these massive ships in their in their columns were was an armada of support ships. So you've got sixteen cruisers of one type or another. You've got four scout ships, fifty one destroyers, one mine layer. There's even the first uh, instance of a plane being used in a naval capacity on board a ship. Uh, I believe it eventually crashes. I don't remember exactly what happens, but it was there. We know that for a fact. So you've got this huge, almost modern fleet of of various types of ships and and weapons and it's heading right into uh right into what the germans believed was a trap that they set and the british had flipped it on its head and now turned it into their trap As the two battlecruiser groups moved further and further ahead of their main fleets, random chance brought them together. A merchant vessel was spotted by the scouts in each, and so the, uh, the two groups were brought together within sight of each other because they went to see what, was, uh, what this merchant ship was doing. And the HMS Galatea signaled Beatty, quote, enemy in sight, end quote. Beatty signaled his ships to move towards the enemy, but even in the smooth, mild seas at this point during the day, the signal was somehow missed by those Queen Elizabeth ships. So they continued north towards a rendezvous that had already been set up with Jellicoe, while Beatty's lightly armored battlecruisers turned south towards Hipper. Sensing that the time was right to spring his trap, Hipper turned his force, his, his, his battlecruiser group around as if to flee away from Beatty. All the while, he knew he was heading straight for his safety and the main fleet of Germany and their bigger guns. The, the day itself was reasonably mild for the North Sea, and at mid-afternoon the sun perfectly silhouetted the British ships on the horizon. And with their superior optics, German gunners had no trouble ranging in on the British vessels giving chase. Quote, suddenly my periscope revealed some big ships, black monsters, six tall, broad-beamed giants steaming in two columns, end quote, said Georg von Hayes, a German gunnery officer. Then, at 2.28, the Germans opened fire. Now... It's a fairly big controversy about this battle, but for, for about 10 minutes, the British didn't do anything once the firing started. They just kind of stood around. And, and remember that order we said earlier where the captain said, uh, follow my lead or whatever it might have been. It's something to the effect of don't do anything unless the, the admiral tells you to do something. All of a sudden you have these ships just kind of waiting for the admiral to make up his mind, and they're waiting for the orders to be given. They didn't want to do anything that might get them in trouble. And so finally, after 10 minutes goes by, the order was given to return fire. 
but things kind of started off rocky. The German ships had had a better paint scheme. So they, their ships were painted pale gray. And that just beautifully blends into the, uh, the misty kind of foggy North Sea. Whereas the British had a little bit darker color. And so they stood out even more in the better optics of the German fire control. So the British ships were still trying to maneuver into a battle formation while they're being targeted and lit up by these German guns, and signals were being missed left and right by the British. Then also the smoke from guns and from fire and from stacks started to play a role as ships became harder and harder to see. The British, they had wanted to go, their plan was initially to go one for one and use their extra ship to double the lead German vessel. So the Germans had five of these battle cruisers. The British had six of them. And if they could get it right, they would have a two-to-one advantage on one of the German vessels. But that visibility issue with the smoke and the fog, and now you've got this mist thing rolling in, that visibility issue causes the British to miscount. And instead of double-teaming one German ship the British end up leaving one German battlecruiser completely untargeted. So at 4 o'clock, Beatty, who will catch serious flack for his work in this battle, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the battle, as we'll see later, Beatty comes under some serious scrutiny. Beatty's flagship at 4 o'clock is hit, and it barely avoids its, its magazine blowing up. So all of the ship's ammunition is about to blow up, but uh, a fatally wounded Marine named Major Francis, with his dying act, orders the magazine flooded and thereby saving the entire ship. But the problem is the lion is forced to turn out of the battle line because it's severely damaged. So the lion has to kind of limp away and, and figure out how to salvage the ship and get back into the battle. But that's going to take some time. And in the meantime, mayhem continued as salvos from the German ship Vondertan slam into the indefatigable. The thin deck armor, because again, these battle cruisers they're fast, but they can't really take a punch. That thin deck armor was no match for these shells, and the shells crashed deep into the ship. A massive internal explosion burst the ship open. She turned over and then sank. All but two of her 900-man crew went down with the ship. And it's at this point, a little bit later in the battle, but Beatty has this famous saying where he's, he's in shock. He has no idea what is happening. Why is this happening? And famously, he would go on to say, quote, there seems to be something wrong with our bloody ships today, end quote. And the British were taking a beating. So Beatty sends in the small ships, those little torpedo boats and, and all these little tiny ships that the light cruisers and whatnot, and his idea is to try and create some space and create some havoc for his bigger ships to, to regroup and reset so that they could get their bearings and come back into the battle. Finally, his Queen E's, those Queen Elizabeth battleships, the newest, best ships out there, they get themselves turned around and they get righted and they come back into the fight. 
but not before Beatty suffered another loss. The battlecruiser Queen Mary was nailed by a full salvo of 12-inch shots. Two massive explosions ripped through the ship, followed by black and red columns of smoky fire shooting into the air. And these giant pillars of darkness flew 800 feet into the sky and marked the death of all 1,266 crewmen of the Queen Mary. Hipper's ships were doing very well but they needed the rest of their fleet to show up soon because these returning Queen Elizabeth battleships could sink each one of them by themselves. And the tables and the momentum of the battle would shift very, very quickly once these Queen Elizabeths started unloading. Luckily for Hipper and his battlecruisers, the, grand, or the high seas fleet did show up. At 4.30, Beatty gets the signal that the high seas fleet itself is on course and not far behind. At 4.40, Beatty signals his ships to bag the hell out of here and head north and make a run for Jellicoe. It's at this point, though, that in a small, small way, the more experienced and the exceptional uh, seamanship and just the history of, of, of naval warfare and, and seamanship really comes through for the British and shines. Because the, the light cruiser Southampton, under Captain Goodenough, had been the, the ship that sighted uh, Shear and the German high seas fleet to begin with. But instead of turning around as soon as he saw the, the German fleet, which any number of boats in that fleet could have sunk him with one shot, he stays his course, and he inches closer and closer, and he gets closer and closer to the main enemy fleet, and he's in incredible danger. At any moment, he could be sunk, but the Southampton hangs on to get a number of the enemy ships and a direction of the enemy ships. And then at the last minute before he's about to get absolutely obliterated, the Southampton turns and dashes back north to safety. And, and the whole while they have to do this really, really difficult job of zigzagging and they're zigzagging back and forth because the Southampton has to avoid over 40 enemy shells each one of these falling within a hundred yards of their ship and just shooting huge geysers of water that are just pounding nearby these ships. And again, any one of these would have sunk that boat. But it's incredibly important, the information that this little ship is bringing back to Jellicoe and to Beatty, because now they know the whole Grand Seas fleet is here, or I'm sorry, not the Grand Seas fleet, the High, high Seas fleet is out, it's ready for battle, and Hipper and, and Shear are, they mean business, they're, they're at it for real this time. And it's because of this little boat and, their, and its captain that they're able to figure this out. So finally, the, the little ship makes it back safely. The Southampton is back to the, the main battle cruisers and joins that, that quick exodus north. And again, this is another time where Beatty has a situation with bad signals because the bad signals that he gives off uh, leave the Queen Elizabeths out on their own. They're out on a limb. They miss the signal to go north, and they are continuing to chug at Hipper, or towards Hipper, which means that they're continuing to chug along towards the German high seas fleet, which puts them in some danger. They they suffered some hits. The Malaya was severely, severely uh, beat up, but 
we talked about it earlier, these ships are extremely powerful. They're very, very strongly defended. They have a lot of armor, and they carry a walloping punch. So they take a good beating, but at the last minute, as the Queen Elizabeth decides to turn back north and start speeding away from the danger, they're still landing some haymakers. They almost sink the German battleship uh, Seedlitz with a couple of these huge 15-inch rounds that they're able to fire as they're speeding away at 25 knots. Beatty's run to the north was almost as much a success for Beatty as his southern trip had been a bit of a disaster. He was able to keep the German fleet on its heels, but he stayed well enough ahead to remain safe. So finally, at six, the, at six o'clock, the big boys are in range of each other. And as the two fleets start to get into firing range and setting up their battle plans and all that, these again, these small ships, so all the light cruisers and the little torpedo boats and all that, they're kind of zooming in between and in and out of all the, the ships, and they're fighting their own little battle as they, they pull up and try and protect their bigger ships or attack the smaller ones, and it creates this this interesting little like mosquito battle between as the birds above them are, are are about to go in for the for the kill on each other and a lot of damage was done to these little tiny ships because they've got very little protection they you know they're coming right up underneath some of these bigger battle cruisers and battleships and you know one shot could put them in the ground so or in you know put them to the bottom so as these ships are going by the the larger German and British ships are taking uh, taking shots at them, and uh, Beatty's battle cruisers put holes in a bunch of the smaller German screen, screening ships, and the British ship the Shark and the British ship the Chester were mauled. And now the Chester has a little bit of a story to it. So the Chester has a young man named John Jack Travers Cornwell, and this kid is age 16, and he's from Leighton, London. The HMS Chester, after it comes under intense fire from, from a bunch of German cruisers, is just raked over. And a bunch of medics on the, on the Chester are running around trying to service men everywhere who are injured. And they come across this one gun where everybody is either, either dead or, or wounded around this gun, except for this one kid who's standing there. And he's got the gun sights in his hands, and he's just waiting to hear for orders. So he's got his little helmet on with the 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 ear you know the earphones on there waiting to get orders in but he's bleeding profusely from the chest like just clearly this is a life-threatening wound and he had been essentially pierced through in the chest by a piece of steel shrapnel that had been flung off when one of the rounds had hit nearby and so after the battle is over the damaged ship, the Chester, is able to steam its way to the port of Immingham, and Cornwell was taken to hospital in, in, in a nearby town, but he eventually dies in June, and unfortunately he dies before his mother or his family could even get there to see him. Now here's where a little bit of controversy happens, because what what happens next is his body is brought to kind of like a pauper's or a common area grave, and it's only marked by a little wooden stick. And what 
the British people think of that once they find out in the Daily Sketch newspaper when it runs a story about this scandal is that it's unacceptable. It's an outrage that this young boy, this hero, is is left to be buried in a in a you know in a pauper's grave and without full honors. And he goes on, and and this kid becomes a real boom for the uh, for the recruitment forces and and trying to get more people interested in joining up he becomes a national sensation essentially uh cornwall is even awarded the victoria cross for his bravery that's uh great britain's highest medal of uh honor for for bravery in the military and Beatty, the commanding officer of this kid he says quote the instance of devotion to duty by boy first class john travers cornwall who was mortally wounded early in the action, but nevertheless remained standing alone at a most exposed post, quietly awaiting orders till the end of the action, with the gun's crew dead and wounded around him. He was under sixteen and a half years old. I regret that he has since died, but I recommend his case for special recognition in justice to his memory and as an acknowledgment of the high example set by him. Cornwell's epitaph reads, It is not wealth or ancestry, but honorable conduct and a noble disposition that maketh men great. End quote. As the main fleets of battleships converge and the smaller ships start peeling off and trying to survive, the British suffer more casualties. The cruiser Warrior was wrecked, and the cruiser Defense was blown up. Jellicoe desperately asks Beatty, his second-in-command, where is the enemy fleet? But he receives, again, another signal that it's just kind of ambiguous. It doesn't really help Jellicoe. It's more of like, oh, they're out there, not really like, oh, here's their exact location. So Jellicoe has to kind of make an in-game decision where he has to, uh, you know, either decide to run away or fight blind. And he orders his ships from their columns into a line of battle. This is something that Nelson, anybody from Nelson's time period, would have recognized immediately. Jellicoe's ships are going from being at right angles with the Germans to now they are running parallel with them. And this is the best fighting position for ships like this because if the cards fell right for the British, they would have the maximum amount of firepower with all of their turrets firing clear at the Germans. But the problem with this is that the whole operation of going from column to line of battle takes some time, and it took 15 minutes, which means that some of the newer ships maneuvered very well and some of the older ones not so well. Three of the older British battle cruisers, however, became totally isolated. The HMS Indomitable, HMS Inflexible, and HMS Invincible were the oldest, weakest battle cruisers that the British had. As the rest of the Grand Fleet moved into this kind of mist fog cover, making them more difficult for the Germans to find, these three ships were suddenly fully visible to the German gunners and right in their sights. The Invincible is hit over and over and over. Finally, a hit amidships lights the flash, uh, the, the magazine, it ignites, and 50 tons of cordite explodes, blowing the ship in 
two separate halves. Within 15 seconds, the two halves that were just bobbing in the sea like a couple of tops, they sink below, taking all but six of the ship's 1,031-man crew. As the Grand Fleet is moving into fighting positions, they were well hidden by this sudden thick fog, so the Germans needed to know what was happening, but could only make out a few of the British ships like the Invincible. So Scheer, the commander of the German force, he asks his second-in-command, he says to Hipper, where, where's the enemy? Where, where, what am I looking for here? And the only reply he got from Hipper was, quote, something lurks in that soup. We would do well not to thrust in it, into it too deeply, end quote. Not knowing what was happening, Scheer believed he had only the British battle cruisers and some older model battleships to deal with. He had no idea he was facing off with the entire Grand Fleet. Unlike Jellico, none of Shear's smaller ships had risked getting close enough to get a, a, a count of the enemy or their their exact location. So with Shear, he's kind of flying blind. Since Jellico also had the direction of Shear's fleet, he was also able to outmaneuver Shear. So Jellico, now in line of battle, with his formation perfect, exactly how he wants it, he uses the fog to screen his maneuvering and was able to put himself, or his fleet, the Grand Fleet, in between the German fleet and their home ports. And he had, at this point, also crossed the T, which in naval warfare means that his ships would be able to overwhelm the Germans with gunfire. And they, the, the British ships would be able to maximize all of their gunfire on a few of the German ships, and the German ships wouldn't be able to do very much or hit very, men, very many of the British ships at the same time. It was every admiral's goal to cross the enemy's T. The move also, in a reversal of earlier in the battle, put the Germans now on the horizon and in the rangefinders of the British ships. The two fleets finally traded significant blows. For the first time in history, you have two sets of dreadnoughts shooting at each other in live action, throwing real punches in a battle that could decide the fate of one of these nations. And the British land 22 hits, but they didn't sink any ships. The Germans, however, they hit with 33 shells, but only the British battle cruisers and the smaller stuff are hit by these 33 shells, which, if you think about it in one way, is you're more likely to sink these, but if you think about it in another way, it doesn't really matter because if you don't sink any of the British battleships or the dreadnoughts, then it, they, it doesn't matter. Their, their power base remains strong. So Jellicoe's leading battleships went basically untouched as they kept slowly closing the space between the two main fleets, getting closer and closer to the Germans, and once they get close enough, then it's game over. They're at point-blank range, they'll sink every single one of the German ships. And at the same time as they're closing that off, they're also cutting the German escape route off. So each time they move a little bit closer and closer to the Germans, they're also separating the Germans from Germany. And after just 10 minutes 
of full-on action between the two fleets of dreadnoughts, the first and only time that dreadnoughts would ever meet eye-to-eye across the ocean and fire away at each other. Ten minutes, that's all it was. And then they break off. Because what happens is, Sheer understands, finally, he sees that the trap he set had been turned on himself, and he just snaps into action. He orders the full fleet, every single ship, to turn away from the enemy and run. They dove into that misty, dusky, kind of dark, smoky, like, uh, fog that just kind of hangs over the battlefield. And it seemed to the British like they just kind of eerily disappeared. Thinking about nothing but surviving now, Sheer makes a bold move and tries to go behind the Grand Fleet. So if you think of it as like a uh, a car chase, so you have the two cars that are parallel going, you know, 90 miles an hour and right by side by side, and then the car on the right-hand side throws its e-brake on and, and the other car shoots past it. And then that car that put the brake on takes a hard left-hand turn and goes right the right across where that car had been driving. So that's what the Germans are trying to do with the Grand Fleet. They're just trying to let it shoot by them, and then they're going to cross behind it. And it's a smart move. The problem is he didn't wait long enough, and he makes that uh, order to cross behind the, the Grand Fleet too soon. And he ends up going back into Jellicoe's line. At 7.10, again, Jellicoe crosses Shears T this time with some results that are good for the British. The Grand Fleet peppered the German high seas fleet as it passed, nailing it with 27 more shots from that, that actually land and hit ships. And each hit left heavy, heavy damage on the German high seas fleet. At 7.18, Scheer again orders a frantic 180-degree turn away from the enemy to all of his ships. Each one of his ships now has to completely spin around and go the other direction. Now, this time, though, he sends in a kind of last-ditch distraction. So we were talking about a a car chase a minute ago, and you've got the two going side-by-side, and then one throws on the brake and goes behind the other one. Well, think about this as the car chase is now, again, they're parallel, and now the car on the left-hand side goes in front of the car on the right, and to try and get more distance and get away, it unleashes like an oil slick, like a James Bond oil slick, or some, you know, nails come coming out of the side so that it, it'll pop the tires of the car behind it. That's essentially what Shear does here, because this time... Instead of just trying to hopefully, hopefully, you know, make it on pure skill and maneuvering, he sends those battle cruisers in a last-ditch suicide screen to buy his battleships more time. So when the rest of his fleet is turned and running, his battle sh- his battle cruisers turn around and go straight at the Grand Fleet. Now this is a every one of these battle cruiser uh, commanders know this is likely going to end in them dying or having to go down with their ship. His small ships were also sent in. And again, so like you've got these little torpedo boats and these little light cruisers that know they are going to, uh, if they take one hit from any of these battleships or dreadnoughts, they're going to sink. But their job is to go in and, and lay some smoke and fire off torpedoes and hopefully that'll distract or or even wound some of Jellicoe's ships and make it count. So Sheer hopes to create maximum chaos and confusion in the British line. And you know what? It worked. 
Although none of Jellicoe's ships were hit by torpedoes, he was forced to turn away to avoid damage to any of those big ships. And this gave Shear a 10-mile head start, and he used it well. Now, this is another moment where Jellicoe gets some, some flack, because if, if one of Jellicoe's ships sinks, or, or two, or even three, he could have caught Shear's entire fleet and sunk all of them. But instead, he's trying to conserve those ships. He's trying to save them. He doesn't want to sink any of his country's, you know, big, big ticket items. So instead, he turns his whole fleet away to save them from the torpedoes. And Sheer escapes. The final act was a series of of very confused little, nasty little night actions. At 8.24, Hipper's battle cruisers, though, and these guys were on that suicide run to buy uh, Shear's main force time, they are beat to hell, but they're able to slip away and find safety in the darkness and in the, the mist and all the fog. And now, of course, there's smoke and all this stuff, so they're able to slip away in the night. And nobody knew it, but the, oddly enough, these two fleets are actually, they're on a converging track. They're essentially, again, going parallel with each other, and they're only separated by six miles as they're traveling in the night. And the weather, though, and the darkness, it, it kept a significant engagement from happening again in the darkness because neither one of these these main fleets could really find each other. They were kind of feeling around in the dark with their smaller ships, but they were never really able to pinpoint where to point the big guns. And through the night, as the Germans ran for home, the British ran right alongside, and and nine little tiny fights occurred. And we're not going to go through all of them, but but just to cover our bases, the third of these uh, these little fights saw that that fearless Southampton, the the one that I talked about, that went in and found the the grand uh, the German high seas fleet got a count in a direction that that ship the Southampton it also has some teeth because it sinks the German cruiser Fraunlob with a torpedo the sixth battle that occurred in this this muffled kind of weird little night fight was another British ship sinking the German ship, the Pomerne, with another deadly torpedo. So this is an interesting time. You're seeing technology, again, really start to play a role. Torpedoes, cheap, easy, and, and simple to train people on, they are taking a toll. They can sink, uh, you know, a multi-million dollar ship with one shot and a torpedo takes a few thousand dollars to make. So you're seeing the the balancing sheet or the the balancing act of technology, counter-technology, advancement, counter-advancement. And so all these little fights must have been really insanely scary and chaotic because everything's happening at night and you you don't really know where you are and, and what lights are coming from what ships and you know, is that the stars on the horizon or are those, is that another ship? And these ships are just kind of appearing in the night right next to you. And, and then there's all this sound and flashing lights and fire and all sorts of stuff happening all around, followed by like seconds of waiting. So you see a bunch of flashes in the distance and then you, you, you're just waiting to see if it was your ship that was being aimed at as, as hopefully the, the shot either doesn't come near you or, you know, it was somebody shooting at somebody else. It must have been a crazy, crazy way to end the battle, but the the last real action before the fleets totally lose each other was at 3.30 a.m. on June 1st. 
And then the Battle of Jutland was finally over. So before we kind of dive into the outcome and exactly what happened and the, the long-standing effects of the Battle of Jutland, I want to go over a little bit of just what it was like to be a sailor. Uh, the, the men on the ship, they suffered aboard these ships, and it was horrible. Instead of splinters uh, like the wood that would have been shot all around in Nelson's day, now the splinters were made of metal, and they were everywhere. They were from the, the ship itself, but also from the shells that were flying around. And the flesh on these men would have been ripped and torn and shredded by flying, jagged shrapnel. The shells from the enemy and then the hunks of metal from their own ship killed men just as efficiently and effectively. Wide, deep chunks of skin and muscle were gouged from the body by passing debris and proved almost impossible to treat in any effective fashion. But it's not so much those wounds that were the most difficult or most painful to deal with. It was the burns that proved most painful. Flash and fire burns scorched the men of both sides, turning them into human bonfires. Steam burns flayed the skin from men and seared their lungs. Little escape was to be had from the superheated air that could have happened anywhere in the ship. The, uh, the quotes that I want to shoot at you really quick from John Keegan are, are really telling. So at one point he has a... Um, a medical officer on the Princess Royal saying, talking about the surgical center, he says, quote, a Marine who had been brought down bleeding seriously from a punctured wound of the face, we had hardly started operating before rapid firing developed, and the tray with all my instruments was deposited on the deck. The light was most trying, the securing of arteries during the operation being particularly difficult. Most of the wounded who numbered exactly 100 were seriously burned. And then he goes on to, to quote a, a man aboard the cruiser Southampton, one of, uh, one of its lieutenants, and he says, quote, The operating room was the stoker's bathroom, about 8 feet high, 12 feet broad, and 12 feet long. Bare-armed, the fleet surgeon and a young doctor were working with desperate but methodical haste. They were just taking a man's leg off above the knee. A hole in the side admitted water to the wardroom. And this is, uh, he's talking about the ship. It suddenly struck. Um, a hole in the side admitted water to the wardroom, which splashed about as the ship gently rolled. In the ankle-deep flood, blood-stained bandages and countless pieces of the small debris of war floated to and fro. The most dreadful cases were the burns, but this subject cannot be written about, end quote. So how bad does it have to be, is my question. How bad does it have to be in terms of a burn for a doctor to not be willing to talk about it? For, for a, a lieutenant, a man of war, somebody who's seen the worst that men can do to men, and yet he is afraid to talk about the burns that these people had. Think about that. That's a, I mean, that 
it's I've never seen anything like it, so I, I I really can't even place my brain into that space. But it must have been horrifying to see some of these, and then to add to that that the pain of wounds and burns was the impossible loneliness of drowning. And this one really affects me because the drowning thing I've always been freaked out by. But think, some of these men were just swept into the sea. You know, at night, in the middle of the night, some of the, the men just, the, a wave or a, a, the shock of a, a shell nearby pushed them right off the boat into the sea and nobody heard them scream, nobody saw them go into the water. And then the only, uh, you know, at night with, with only the stars and the light of their ship moving away, those are the only things that they had company as they drowned there. And then there were others that were, as their ships are sinking, they're desperately, desperately trying to, to outswim the almost magnetic pull of this, this sinking ship that's like a vacuum as it goes down. And alone, they were just drawn deeper and deeper until there was nothing. And the, the bodies of these drowning victims, they would pop up all over the Danish coast for weeks after the battle. That's the human side of the, these conflicts that I'm going to try and do a better job of, of really diving into because I don't think I get, get there enough. And, and it's important that we, we talk about that because this is, you know, it's all well and game and, and, and fine to think of this as like a big game, but it's not. There's, there's real hor horrible violence and consequences that are had during these battles. The German high seas fleet had given Jellicoe the slip. Finally finding the right timing, Scheer had successfully gone around the back end of the Grand Fleet. But the trip to port was slow, and when the Germans got to safety, it was time to tally the losses. The battlecruiser Lutzow had been sunk, and three of the other four were un of the other four battlecruisers were unfit to fight without significant repair. 20 other ships were heavily damaged, including 10 battleships. The Seedlitz had taken more hits than any other ship in the fight. That's on both sides. And it was, su it was in such bad shape that it actually had to be towed the last leg of the trip to safety. The Seedlitz and the German uh, ship, the Durflinger, were so severely beaten up that they, neither one of them would return to service until the autumn and then the winter of 1916. The German Navy lost 2,551 sailors dead and 500 wounded, many of these in the most gruesome way possible. The British losses of men and material were far more significant. Three battle cruisers, three regular cruisers, eight destroyers were all sunk. Five capital ships had been walloped, but they would, in fact, in the long run, be fine. 6,097 sailors were lost by the Royal Navy, with oddly another 500 wounded. So the battle cruiser theory had been proven patent, patently wrong. The lack of armor, and in the British case, the lack of flashguards, left them woefully vulnerable. Scheer returned his battered fleet to Germany and reported that the earliest his ships could be ready to sail again would be August. Probably mid to late August at that. The Kaiser, however, saw the Battle of Jutland as a wonderful victory. 
an Anglophile to the very bone, the Kaiser named Jutland the North Sea Battle of 1 June, clearly mimicking the famous Royal Navy victory of the glorious 1st of June. The Kaiser greeted his sailors with kisses and iron crosses given to entire crews. Scheer even received the Pour le Merit, which is Germany's highest military honor. Scheer, though, for his part, saw the truth of the battle, saying, quote, even the most successful outcome of fleet action will not force England to make peace, end quote. To the rest of the country, the exchange ratio of three to one in men and ships was good enough reason to celebrate a victory. But Admiral Scheer was no fool, and from this time on, he, he had every reason to fear the Royal Navy and, and what their capabilities in the North Sea were. Admiral Hipper went on to take command of the High Seas Fleet in 1918. At the end of the war, while the armistice was being worked on, Hipper ordered a final glorious suicide mission into the North Sea. His men refused and mutiny. The German fleet would finish the war having made some small raids and prodding-like attacks, but never again sailed in force. From June 1, 1916 to, no to November 11, 1918, a total of 29 months, the High Seas Fleet was bottled up. It played no more significant role in the war or, or in grand strategy. The distance blockade of the Royal Navy had worked. The British return to port was the exact opposite of the German. Jellicoe told the Admiralty in London upon returning to Scapa Flow that the same day his ships would be ready to return to sea. He asked only for four hours to refit and make good his losses. Where the Germans ended their aggressive war on the sea and focused on underwater raiding, the British doubled down and added nine more battleships throughout the rest of the war. Germany, only three. Jellicoe, who performed above his abilities at Jutland, became first sea lord in 1916 and brilliantly devised the convoy system that saved British shipping and supply. Beatty, who had underperformed, replaced Jellicoe as the commander of the Grand Fleet. He was, however, just as cautious as his predecessor throughout the rest of the war. And Beatty, who was that dashing kind of movie star character, had that moment in the limelight as he was the man who had the honor of accepting the German Navy's surrender in 1918. The verdict was in. The German High Seas Fleet won the battle, but the Royal Navy's Grand Fleet won the war. All right, so just a couple of interesting things that I found as I went through, and I really appreciate those of you who have, who have stuck around. This has been our easily, I believe, the longest episode that I've done so far, so uh, I definitely appreciate you hanging out with me. But uh, some of the stuff that we look at as we kind of consider the Battle of Jutland and its uh, its outcome, which is there's some controversy over because people say, oh, well, it's a victory for this side or that side. Well, th the British had the overwhelming majority of ships before, during, and after Jutland. Uh, 
a deeper look at things shows that there was uh, there was kind of a false equivalency at the root of the entire German risk theory strategy. The Royal Navy had ships to lose, but even more important, the long history and the experience at sea had taught them that just being able to get ships back to sea quick was almost just as effective as building more. It's kind of like Tom Brady is, is very famous for saying, you, you can't be the best quarterback in the league if you're not on the field. So you do whatever you have to to get on the field. Well, that's the same premise with the British Navy. They, the Royal Navy, they've always said, well, the ships don't do us any good sitting in dock, so we need to get them out on the water. And, and right after Jutland, they did the same thing. It's, it's kind of that idea of you've got to bare your teeth and sometimes you get a bite unless you want your enemy to think that you're soft. Uh, beyond that, the true damage to the Grand Fleet was almost minimal. So what we talked about earlier, the, the, the 10 battleships that Germany had that were hit or, you know, had suffered during the battle, they were severely damaged. A lot of those ships would not be out again for months, whereas the Grand Fleet, almost all of their battleships were untouched. And beyond that, they had already outclassed everything that the Germans had. Those Queen uh, Elizabeth-class battleships were stronger, faster, or just as fast, and packed a bigger punch. The Barham, the Malaya, and the Warspite, all Queen Elizabeth-class battleships, had been repeatedly hit by the biggest German guns that they had and would spend more time in, uh, you know, spend spend some time in, in dock getting repairs, but they all survived and they were all back fighting within weeks. So the German, the, the, qual- the, the, the idea that the Germans would somehow catch up in terms of quantity and quality is kind of, you know, a false equivalency. And then you've also got the idea that Germany had no, uh, no concept of how to quickly turn around and get ships back out to sea. The British had been doing that for, for hundreds of years. One of my favorite things is uh, Patrick O'Brien books, and, and I love how they talk about it. They, they were fixing their ships at sea. You know, they, were, they would get into a fight with another ship, and then they'd be plugging holes with, with pieces of wood, with barrels, with cloth, and they'd be figuring out a way to make that ship functional, even if it had to fight within hours of being at sea with, and being at battle. So the, the British Navy, the Royal Navy, had a lot of experience with that. The Germans had almost none. And the, uh, you know, the, again, those Queen Elizabeth-class ships, they were right back in the fight fairly quickly. The same can't be said for the Germans. Ten capital ships, like we said, those battleships had been smashed up under fire, and they are, they really take m- weeks, and in some cases months, to get better. But beyond that, the psychological damage of seeing how fragile these huge investments were made the the return to to battle very unlikely. Even if they were totally healthy, it's unlikely that the German high seas fleet would have set sail anytime soon because the, the fear of losing these ships was huge. And since you already didn't have very many, you were already outnumbered, you're already outclassed, you would have, the, the German high seas fleet would have been utterly destroyed if it went back to, to, uh, to battle with the Grand Seas fleet. So it's, uh, it's just, you know, the argument, I think it's a lot of because uh, a lot of this misconception is because the Germans were kind of the first ones to go to print. So they were the ones who kind of, uh, you know, they got back before everybody else and they were able to, to claim victory. And 
history has kind of come back because Jellico took a little bit longer than normal to write the the dispatch and tell the exact story. And since the Germans were able to put it out there first that they had, you know, clearly won because they killed more ships and more men, well, it doesn't, you know, just a little bit of scrutiny tells you that's not exactly the case. And this is not to say that the British remain at the top of the naval game after Jutland. The, the proven superiority of the German technology, like their optics, their, their flash protection, uh, that, that shows that the Britain's already losing a little bit on its fastball. Added to that was the clear decline in British manufacturing, which by 1914 was already behind Germany and the U.S. in steel production alone. And it was now also known that these ships, though impressive as they were, had critical weak spots, the thin decks being one of them. And we're right around the corner from seeing the advent of the plane and and seeing how one of these tiny little fairly cheap planes might very well puncture those thin little decks from the air with a little bomb and bring down these huge, you know, uh, ancient masters of the ocean. Now, uh, the, the human cost was obviously significant. Of the 110,000 men involved with the Battle of Jutland, something like 9,000 died, which is, is clearly a fairly high percentage for naval battles. And, but Jutland fits right in with the theme of World War I. You've got huge and costly battles being fought everywhere in Europe and on the continent, actually everywhere at this point in, in the world, and then, yeah, it makes sense that you'd have a huge and costly battle at sea. And just like as you saw on the Western Front and on the Eastern Front, you have these huge costly battles that are ultimately ineffective and ultimately don't really decide anything. And that's what Jutland did. And we know that, yes, it decided that the Germans were never going to break out of the blockade, but they were never going to break out of the blockade to begin with. So in, in its own weird way, the, the, the British blockade is kind of like the trench warfare of the Western Front where, yeah, I mean, it exists and, and the British aren't able to beat the Germans because they're in their port and the Germans aren't able to break out of the blockade. So they're kind of just stuck at this line. And that, I think, is very interesting to play with that idea. And a couple of other interesting questions and, and thoughts that leapt up into my head as I'm, I'm researching this. And I swear, I'm, I'm wrapping this up. I've got to go to New York with my wife tomorrow, so I'm trying to get this all in. But I think it's, I think it's really interesting and worth talking about. But the, um, the technological leap of the dreadnought was incredible. Up until the 1800s, early 1900s, huge leaps into the future were not a commonplace thing. Like, huge technological leaps didn't happen regularly. The dreadnought was, you know, I, today we see like technological leaps every other day. You know, something new is happening. Uh, Tesla is going to have satellites ringing the world. Like things are constantly happening and, and expanding and, and innovating. Not so 100 years ago. The dreadnought was much like the nuclear program. It was the culmination of hundreds of theories and dozens of fields of science and, and a huge, massive workforce to build it and engineer it and, and design it. And, and like the nuclear weapons of its time, it was a world-changing weapon. And I just think that's a fascinating thing to, to think about is that you have like a pre-nuclear weapon in the dreadnought. Um, it's, again, just one of those things that I just... 
I find very interesting. Uh, the other thing that blew me away is riddled throughout the research on this story is the references to Trafalgar and, and the Battle of Trafalgar and Nelson and, and the utter destruction of an enemy force via some tactical maneuver. And it's interesting to me because as I research, you know, other battles of World War I, the constant references to Cannae by German planners and, and military theorists and generals of the day. So it's just kind of cool that you've got this this ancient battle and then this, you know, this older battle from the Napoleonic times that in a weird, almost like a militarized specter, it kind of haunts the First World War uh, on both sides, but particularly for the Germans. It seems like every German admiral, uh, every German general and politician wanted to recreate these singular victories. And it almost seems like sometimes the imagination spent trying to win a Cannae or a Trafalgar impeded the ability to have an imagination that figured out a way to win in other ways. And, and, and both sides in World War I were affected by the pursuit of this Trafalgar-like victory in such a, a strikingly similar way. Like they, you know, Jellicoe and Shear, they're using the exact same kind of plan, hoping to create a Trafalgar. And the staying power of Hannibal and Nelson's finest tactical moments is, is just crazy. We're talking with Hannibal thousands of years, with, with Nelson hundreds of years. Is there anything like that in today's world in terms of, of, of military? Like, are we still thinking as military planners and theorists? Do they still contemplate Cannae? Do they still think about Trafalgar? Are these two so impressive that they will always be the, the high watermark of, of tactical maneuvering? And then in the final point, and then I'm done, and I swear to God you won't hear from me for a couple of weeks, but my big what if for this particular battle is, what if Germany had put 25% of their army budget, of their army material, of their army manpower into the Navy? I mean, if you think about the German army, it's got millions of men. It has millions of pounds of material, hundreds of thousands of pounds of, of, of you know, ammunition, uh, raw goods, raw materials. With the technology and the growing ability uh, of their their crews and their captains bolstered by that much investment and that much proof of of theory like they I would have to believe that Jutland would have looked somewhat different. I think that with that much investment, you might have seen seen an, a different outcome in Jutland, so I'd be interested to hear what you guys have to say by that um okay i'm done let's uh let's just go straight to the end here. That was the Battle of Jutland. Thank you very much for listening. Again, follow along on um, Instagram and Facebook. Check out cauldronpodcast.com. The, again, the main source of, for this episode is the book, The Price of Admiralty by John Keegan. I love this man's work. I always will. He has a way of weaving history into a story that's just beautiful. I also used loads of articles and publications, but couldn't figure a way to get uh, this particular one into the episode, but it's really good, so go check it out at foreignpolicy.com, and this is uh, by an author named James R. Holmes, and it's a piece on how the U.S. Navy has forgotten how to fight. He draws tons of great little parallels to the, the Royal Navy at Jutland, and it's totally worth a gander, so check that out at foreignpolicy.com. 
Go to cauldronpodcast.com for comments, concerns, questions, and theories. If you catch an error, shoot me a message and I will correct it in the next episode. Again, if you want to become a patron producer, go to Patreon, search Cauldron Podcast, and you can get some cool stuff on, uh, on Patreon in terms of rewards. Next week's episode is going to be a little bit different. It's, uh, it's already recorded, so don't worry about waiting for a few weeks. It's done. It's recorded. I just have to edit it. But it's an interview with profes- uh, Professor Greg Jackson. Uh, he's the awesome uh, host of History That Doesn't Suck podcast, which is really cool. Very, very American history focused. So if you like that, check that out. But he and I to kind of goof off around and uh, uh, we talk about the Battle of Bunker Hill. So, keep your ears peeled for that one. All right, have a good night. Thank you very much.